You're listening to True Vine Church Community Podcast. We hope this message sparks and sustains revival with your relationship with Jesus. For more information about True Vine, visit truevinephiladelphia.com. I want to maintain the atmosphere that we established in worship this morning. We are taking a brief break from our sermon series on the story of the Bible. And I actually want to share with you today uh, kind of a, it's a combination of a testimony with some teaching and also I hope that some transference takes place that we can receive from things that God is doing in other places uh, in the United States and elsewhere. And so uh, I'm going to start off this morning reminding you about something that I mentioned two weeks ago. Two Sundays ago, this is the day that the Eagles lost the Super Bowl. Um, But that morning, I shared with you, at the beginning of our service, I shared with you about something that was happening at a Christian university in Wilmore, Kentucky called Asbury University, how at their Wednesday morning chapel service, um, God began to do some unique stuff, and that Wednesday morning chapel service never concluded, and at uh, two weeks ago, it was a Sunday morning, and I said, it's still going on almost 100 hours later. They went 24-7 throughout the night. Do you remember this? Any of you remember me mentioning this to you? And I know that our subsequent Tuesday night discipleship group took time to kind of discuss that and debrief that. Um, you may have seen this in the news. It was covered by the national news, uh, you know, ABC, NBC, CNN, Fox, all had stories on it. And so rather than me telling you about it, I just got a clip of a news report from the local NBC affiliate in Lexington, Kentucky. This is a two-minute clip. We're going to play this for you, so just try to follow uh, their reporting, because I'm not going to, I'm going to tell you about my experience visiting it, but I'm, I'm not going to give you all the background, okay? So, uh, let's go ahead and roll this clip. Good evening, I'm Larry Smith. Glad you're with us here on this Friday evening. What began as a routine chapel service at Asbury University has turned into something much bigger. Now people are coming from other cities and colleges to be a part of what's happening. Sean Moody explains in tonight's LEX 18 Big Story at 11. On a Friday night at Asbury University, a chapel service doesn't really seem all that unusual. For the people here tonight, though, this is something different. There's just, like, not even words to describe it. Because it's not really a Friday service at all. We've been here 56 hours. This is what a 10 a.m. Wednesday service has become. It just never stopped. People just never left, never went to class, never went to lunch. And um, then later, people started coming back to chapel. Ava Miller's a freshman. She was here Wednesday morning when this started. She said when it ended at 11, people just kind of lingered and the band kept playing. Since then, people have come in and out continuously, keeping the service going. Administrators have brought in food and water for people. Miller says it's spread beyond Asbury's campus. Last night we had people from Transylvania, we had people here from Asbury, of course, like UK. We had in the middle of the night a bus from Mount Vernon Nazarene College come down with just a bus of like a van of students that just came. Um, Ohio Christian University, there is a revival that's like breaking out there. 
Administrators here say this kind of thing has happened a few times over the years. In February 1970, there was one that went on for 144 hours. However long it goes this time, they hope it leaves an impact. And so our prayer is, is that God would be honored and that students' lives would be changed, but all of our lives would be changed. In Wilmore, Sean Moody, LEX 18 News. So that started March 8th with a simple chapel service that they described as not remarkable. It was a normal chapel service, but 19 students stayed behind to pray for revival, and uh, they continued singing, and other students heard the singing and returned back after their classes. And um, when I heard about this, which was last, it was a Saturday, I guess, uh, February 11th, I heard about this. I immediately, my heart was turned toward it because I know that something like this had happened in 1970. In fact, I know people, older people that were students and experienced this in 1970 and they would always talk about it warmly and how it it changed their lives. And so I just was predisposed to lean into this and I really wanted to go. But by the time I heard about it, it was already three or four days old. I know that the one that happened in 1970 only lasted six days, and I kind of expected there to be a Super Bowl parade at some point. But my calendar cleared up, um, and there was no uh, parade. But in reality, this is what happened. I kept wanting to go, but thinking it probably will end before I get there. But I want to go, but it will probably end before I get there. Last Saturday morning, I woke, in the, woke up in the morning with what? I would say Old Testament prophets called the burden of the Lord. It's a burden. It's not a comfortable feeling. It's not a hug from God. It's more like a putting his hand on his shoulder, (laughs) on your shoulder, like you're going to do this. And I felt like the Lord was saying to me to go to this in Kentucky. I had to remind him, you know this is in Kentucky. This is not in Jersey that I was to go in, I was to take my 12-year-old son, Aiden. So because I have the fear of the Lord, but I also have something called the fear of Kendra, (laughs) I had to talk to my wife about this because I was proposing essentially that kind of on a whim I was going to drive 1,500 miles, be gone for several days, leave her with the rest of my kids, and uh, spend hundreds of dollars on this whim. I want to give my wife credit because she welcomed this immediately. She, I, she said to me, I'd been hoping that you could go. Um, and so she didn't put up any fight. I'm going to try to keep this part short, but there were so many scheduling challenges that at any moment could have disrupted this entire thing because when, we ch- when I made this decision, this was a 24-7 thing. So my thought was, at any point that we get there, as long as we're willing to wait in line, we will get in. Well, the day, you know, as I'm planning it, they, re- they changed the schedule because this is a town of 6,000 that had 20,000 visitors in one weekend. The town was getting overwhelmed. They were running out of food in the grocery stores. Uh, they just were not able to support it. And so the college said, we're going to cease the 24-7 thing. We're just going to have two services a day. And I started to think, oh, we're going to drive all the way there for two services we might not even get into. But because I fear the Lord and because I fear Kendra, we're still going to go. 
going to leave Monday morning or Monday afternoon. I laid, I took a nap Monday afternoon or I attempted to take a nap because I thought this is the last time I will be not sleeping in my van in a parking lot, which is what we did. We slept on an air mattress in our van in, a park, in parking lots across the south. Uh, <clears throat> while I was laying in bed, they changed the schedule again. No afternoon services, just one evening service a day, and it's only for students, high school and college students. I thought, okay, I don't know about this. But there was, a, so I actually t- talked to my wife and I said, I don't think we can go. I actually had decided in my mind this is not going to work out. I was so disappointed. But I also had this feeling of like, you're sinning. (laughs) Which I would not say, I'm not putting that on anyone else. This is a personal thing, just for me. So I was like, okay, then we will go. I don't know what we're going to find. I don't know what we're going to come to. I don't know if we'll even be able to set foot in any buildings. When I decided, okay, we will go, then I felt clean. I felt this feeling of clean, like making the right decision. And so when I got in the car with my son at 5 p.m. Monday, we decided we were going to drive four or five hours that night. No, longer than that. I told him, you know Abraham in the Bible? God told Abraham, just start walking. You will not know where you're going. That's what we're doing. This is an adventure. He accepted that. It was easier for him to accept than me. This is 100% not my personality, by the way. I think you know that. I am Mr. Plan and Program and Strategize. So doing things on a whim is... This had more to do with my calling than my personality, and those are not the same thing. And sometimes you may have to choose your calling over your personality. Moses had to do that because he didn't think he should be the leader. Uh, Gideon had to do that because he didn't think he was prepared to be a leader. So anyway, that's a separate sermon. We get to, they change the schedule while I was driving. That By students, they mean between the ages of 16 and 25. So my son is less than 16 and I'm slightly older than 25. And so on paper, we're not getting into anything. Well, I found out when I got there, as I was driving, okay, there is an overflow room across the street in a separate chapel. If we get there early enough and are willing to stand in line, we can get into an overflow room across the street. So we arrive on campus. I've never been there. I don't know what I'm looking for. We're driving around. I don't know what building I'm looking for. And we turn a corner, and then boom, there are, there's a crowd of 400 people in the, the yard in front of the chapel, praying, and uh, we park, and we go, we just get in the middle of that, and it, there's a little group over here. The first thing I saw was a group of 20 college students on their knees crying out for revival in America, and then I saw there's a little group over here around a guitar singing. There's a little group over here, someone's preaching, I heard a couple people preach. The one that made the most impact on me was a guy in his 70s who had been a student in 1970 when this had happened there. And he used this phrase. He said, At, in that moment, Jesus Christ fused his spirit to my spirit, and I've never been the same. 
And that hit me, that phrase fused. That's a new way to think about it. They fused, Jesus fused his spirit to our spirit, regenerating us, bringing us to be born again. And so I, that, by the way, this guy was just so mellow. Not screaming, not shouting. He was gentle as he was sharing this. So we spent a little bit of time out there and the service started at 7.30 and we had planned to get in line at 6 so that we could make sure we got in. We drove all that way. I wasn't going to get turned away. <laughs> We're going to at least get into the overflow room. So, <clears throat> But I noticed that a, about 5 o'clock, a line started to form already. And we had to eat dinner. And we went to Subway. There was a Subway right on the edge of the campus. So we went to Subway. In the Subway, my son took a picture of this. This is in Subway, not Chick-fil-A, Subway. There's a big sign that says, Jesus loves you. Now, you might expect that at you know, Chick-fil-A, but not Subway. So we get our sandwiches, and we run, and we, get, we eat them while we're waiting. By 5.15, there's 100 people in line. This is more than two hours beforehand. Uh, when, the sur- when the doors open, I could not see the end of the line. It was probably a quarter to a half a mile long. The, sanctuary, the overflow room only sat 650 uh, double that were left outside. So that's 2,000 people in this line. Across the street was a separate line for the students, which was another 2,000 people. So you're talking 4,000 people in a town of 6,000 trying to get into these. We were at the next to last opportunity. So we get in there. We've already seen expressions of the manifest presence of God outside in the yard, but now we get into the building I loved how peaceful and gentle the whole thing was. I think there's probably a little bit of Southern hospitality mingled in here, but everyone was so humble. There were people walking around nicely dressed, bow ties, vest, slacks, but also they didn't care if you got your snot on them. They, were, they would pray with you if you were crying. They weren't proper, but they were humble, and I loved that. Um, while we were worshiping in this overflow room, we got to watch the service on a live uh, stream. And everything that was happening in the main room was happening in the overflow room. While we were watching it, I felt a wave of God's presence come over me. During the first line of the second song, I remember it, it was so clear. It was like a bell. When a bell rings, it's just so clear. It cuts through the air. This wave of the Lord's presence come over me, and it was familiar. I have felt it here. I've felt it other places. It wasn't like a special, there were no 13 special herbs and spices because it was Kentucky. Um, But as soon as I experienced that, I was like, this is real. And I went from plain old church singing to tears within like in a second. My son also said that he felt the Lord's presence in his, his body while he was there in a different way, we saw people, mostly we saw people confessing sin and getting right with God. We saw some other stuff too. We saw prayer for healing and we saw some you know, maybe minor deliverance issues, but we mostly saw people confessing sin and getting right with God. Um, we were in there for two hours and I just want to give props to my son who waited in line for two hours 
and then sat in a church service for two hours and never complained one time. That is a miracle for, for even an adult to do that. He, he had a sense, he's had a good children's church teacher and youth group leader, he had a sense that we were on holy ground. He said that phrase, that this is holy ground. We actually talked about whether we should take our shoes off. We kept them on, but it was cold. After two hours, I said, do you want, do you want to step outside and take a break? Like, just get some fresh air, take a minute. And we did. We stepped outside, and you could see across the street, the main chapel, I don't know, 150 yards away, has police tape around it, police officers in front of it, police cars. Like, they're not letting anyone in. I said to Aiden, you want to sneak in? He said yes, because we could see some people trickling out the side door. I said, you want to sneak in? He said, yeah. So we went over, crossed police tape, walked right past police officers. Now, if you don't know this already living in Philly, I'm going to give you a tip. If you have to walk past a police officer, act like you know what you're doing. Like, act like you're supposed to be there. Don't, don't slink by. Just puff your chest out like you're supposed to be there. They won't ask you a question. So... We get, there's a small line. The people in front of us in line get turned away. They're not allowed to go in. So already my heart's sinking. There's signs everywhere, millennials and Gen Z only. I thought, what is this, a a TikTok club? So I said, I, I look at my son. I get up to the line. I look at him. I say, what qualifies as Gen Z? And they said, he can go in. And you probably shouldn't let him go in alone, so you can go in too. And I was like, whoa. So, and then the people behind us got turned away. So the point is, bring 12-year-olds with you. <laughs> they will get you into anything. We get in, and we walk in, and I've been watching this off and on for 12, well, not 12, maybe 10 days. I felt like... I was in the center of the universe. Not, not that I was the center of the universe, but that the, I felt like I was in the room that was the center of the universe. Now, I know objectively that that's not true. I understand that. But that is one of the residual effects of being in God's presence is you feel like his eyes are on where you are. And if, it, if his eyes are on you, then you do feel like then this is the center of the universe. Again, that's a subjective feeling, not an objective reality. But um, we mostly, while we were in the main room, because it was all young people, we mostly just saw young people dramatically pouring themselves out to God in worship and in prayer. Um, I loved how simple it was. There was no superstar here. Jason Upton, a uh, worship leader, sang about this 25 years ago when he, he sang about a nameless, faceless generation that will seek God. Nameless, faceless means there'll be no celebrity pastor, there'll be no superstar Christian. It's just a bunch of people, anonymous followers of Jesus. And that's what this basically was. They had offers. When this caught on, all the famous televangelists and pastors and authors you've ever heard of said, hey, I'd be happy to come speak for you. And they said, no, thank you. 
This started with our students, and it's going to continue with our students. We don't need, you're welcome to come. You can participate like anyone else, but we don't need, we don't need you to take the stage. Same with worship leaders. Some of the worship musicians you listen to on the radio offered to come and lead, and they said, it's fine, our students have it. I love that. The simplicity, the humility. Um, they were protecting it. This is something that I think the average charismatic will not be able to understand. There were times when people prayed out really aggressive, almost angry prayers. They were asked to leave. They said, listen, this thing started with gentleness and humility. We don't need that anger here. Um, you can either calm down or you can go outside. When people prayed out prayers that were overtly political, they were asked to leave. I think there are some Christians that don't even understand that. When people would, <laughs> I, love, I love this. I love that this offended both the charismatics and the non-charismatics. Someone brought in a shofar, which is a ram's horn, and blew it in the middle of the service. They said, you can either put that away or you can leave. I don't know if you guys know that carrying out a hollowed-out ram's horn and blowing it in the middle of a crowd of people is a little weird. <laughs> it's a thing that charismatics do, and, and I'm not opposed to it, and we have done it here, but to do it kind of without permission in a place where you're an outsider, without any warning, it's weird. It's disruptive, and it's unnecessary. It's, it's, a, it's appropriate when it's, you know, it's, it's prepared and we know what's going on and you're not going to blow it in the ear of a stranger and it's, you know what I mean, it's part of the culture, but there it wasn't. I loved that they just kind of like protected everything. Protected it without controlling it, which is a challenging thing to do. So we, uh, we had, we, you know, we, we were there till um, 10.30, 10.45 then we visited the work of God at Waffle House and um, but I, wanna, I just want to share a perspective and then I want three, three takeaways from our trip here. The first is this. <clears throat> when God does stuff like this, it's obviously a challenge to try to discern what's happening in the moment. Is this of God or is this not of God? And uh, it's helpful to have characteristics to look at. And so the, the first, uh, I want to show you some characteristics of revival. I have a slide uh, called Characteristics of Revival. I just want to show you really quickly. There are, this is my personal list. Now, this is not an authoritative list. It's just revivals both in the Bible and historically in church history have had a couple uh, characteristics. One, it starts during a time of spiritual decline. Um, the, you know, this happened in Ezra and Nehemiah's day. This happened in Josiah's day. This happened during the Great Awakenings in the United States. Um, there has to be some spiritual decline. A, a revival presupposes that there's some sort of spiritual decline. Begins with a prevenient stirring. That means that God starts this, not man. It's something that God initiates. There's a word of the Lord. Um, there's usually uh, some sort of specific thing God wants to do. It's a word from God coming through Scripture. Um, this happened with uh, Josiah. They found the book of Deuteronomy, which had been missing for generations. Uh, Ezra and Nehemiah had, a, uh, I think, an eight-hour-long Bible-reading marathon 
during their revival that they oversaw. Uh, a, a revival in Acts chapter 2 at Pentecost. It was the preaching of Joel chapter 2. Um, and then there, there's a response to God's word and a renewal of commitment. These are some of the characteristics of revival. But I want to illustrate it this way. God said that the kingdom, Jesus said that the kingdom of God would come as a seed. We often think that it's going to come fully developed, fully mature, fruit-bearing, but the kingdom of God comes as a seed. He often would use parables about seeds being planted along the roadside or a mustard seed or uh, there was seeds is the way that Jesus talks about the kingdom. So I have up on the screen a picture of an acorn. An acorn is a seed. What does an acorn grow into? A tree, specifically an oak tree, right? So I have a picture of an oak tree that I want to show you. It's a huge difference between an acorn and an oak tree, right? In one little acorn is the potential for an oak tree which could multiply to a forest of oak trees in the acorn. We went to Kentucky to see the acorn, not the oak tree. We're talking about something that's only two weeks old. I think that people, there, there have been people that are somewhat critical that, that are looking for a full-grown oak tree and don't realize we're just at the acorn stage right now, you know? So, so don't yell at the acorn because it doesn't have leaves. Don't yell at the, don't be critical of the acorn because there's no bark on it. Don't be critical of the acorn because it hasn't put down roots yet. It's just a seed. It will... It will, if we water it and cultivate it, it will grow into a fruit-bearing thing. But don't be mad. Don't, when, when a little baby's born, do you just cross your hands and say, well, we'll wait and see if you become a productive member of society. <laughs> we'll wait and see. I notice that you can't even talk yet, so <laughs> not looking good. No, you have to cultivate that, right? And that's what... The kingdom is like, it comes like a seed. It needs to be watered and protected and nourished. And if we do those things, we should expect that the acorn will become an oak tree. But listen, if you stomp on the acorn and then say, see, it never even bore fruit. Yeah, because we failed to steward it. Does that make sense? So we went to see the acorn, not the oak tree. I fully expect that what God has done at Asbury University will spread to other places. In fact, it already has. I truly expect that it will be sustained, not in colleges, but in churches, because churches are more equipped for that type of ministry. And frankly, it's going to have to move from meetings to lifestyles. Not, not a series of meetings and a schedule of meetings, but actually lifestyles that are centered around the manifest presence, relying on the filling of the Holy Spirit, developing healthy souls, living in community, and growing in spiritual formation, which is what we've been preparing to do here for six or seven years through our vision and our strategies. There are three takeaways that I came home with from this experience uh, at Asbury. I want to share these with you quickly. The first is radical humility. This is a phrase that they used uh, to describe what God was doing in their midst is that people were just called into radical humility. I love that they put the word radical before humility. Um, 
people were just not considering themselves first. They were considering other people first, which is, to me, kind of a sign and a wonder to draw people's attention that this is real because there's nothing about our culture that is humble or encourages you to put other people first. So radical humility, I want to share from 1 Peter chapter 5, 5 through 6, which says... Likewise, be subject to your elders, and all of you clothe yourselves with humility toward one another, because God is opposed to the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, so that he may exalt you at the proper time. Humility attracts God's support. God opposes the proud. You want to be proud? You want to be puffed up? You want to put yourself first? That's a one-way track to God's opposition in your life. But it says that he uh, opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. He supports the humble. If you will embrace humility, if you will embrace a self-forgetting lifestyle, not self-deprecating, not self-hating, I'm not talking about that because that's still self-centered. I'm talking about an others-oriented lifestyle. If you will embrace that, you will have God's support. You will have God behind you. You will feel like you are running with the wind at your back, going further and faster than you could do on your own. Humility attracts God's support. It also says, here's the application in verse six, therefore humble yourselves. Who's supposed to humble you? You. (laughs) You. Uh, Asking God to humble you is reverse delegation. He told us to humble ourselves. Oh, God, make me humble. Well, step one is do your own job. I told you to humble yourself. Don't wait for your circumstances to humble you. Don't wait for other people to humble you. Humble yourself. You have everything accessible. You have the grace necessary. You have everything you need to choose humility immediately today. You don't have to wait on it. You don't have to come up with a plan you can humble yourself immediately. God has already provided the grace necessarily, necessary to do that. Another takeaway is this phrase, holiness unto the Lord. Um, I have a slide of this. This is the top of their uh, sanctuary. Uh, it's like 35 or 40 feet high, it seems like. This actually comes from their theological tradition. Uh, they're Methodists, and we align very closely. We kind of come from the same roots that they come from. You know, there's Baptists and there's Presbyterians. We, we come from the stream that like Methodists and Asbury come from, the holiness tradition. Holiness under the Lord is the idea of being set apart, being unique, not unique uh, because of your haircut, not unique because of your personality, but unique in the, in the way that you have been set apart for God and by God. Holiness allows us to experience and comprehend God. I want to read Hebrews chapter 12, uh, verse 14. Hebrews 12, 14 says, Pursue peace with all people and the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. It says that without holiness, no one will see the Lord. It's not just talking about like in heaven. It's talking about in this life. The word see in this passage means to become acquainted with by experience. You want to experience God? Live in holiness. 
You might wonder, like, well, how, man, I've been going to church my whole life. I've never experienced God. I read the Bible. I don't experience God. I pray. I don't experience God. Could it be possible that an unwillingness to live in holiness is what's hindering you from having those experiences that you hunger for? Here's what I mean, and here's how we live in holiness, because there's different ways of thinking about this. I don't think they're all correct. I, I actually preached this on January 1st this year. Some people believe that holiness comes through eradication. Basically, they believe that sin is ripped out of you by the roots and that you achieve perfection, sinless perfection. Now, I've never met anyone that's been sinlessly perfect. I've only met people that think they were sinlessly perfect, and they're actually very annoying. There's nothing in the New Testament that leads me to believe that we're going to achieve sinless perfection in this life. We're going to be warring against the flesh till the day that we die. So the problem with thinking you've achieved perfection is you stop warring. You stop opposing the flesh because in your mind, well, if I want to do this and I'm perfect, then this must be of God. What a dangerous way to live. So that's eradication. I don't believe in that. There's also something called mortification. It's kind of the idea that you punish yourself for sin. You might give yourself a guilt trip. Some people physically will hurt themselves. Um, this comes out in a kind of even, it's already twisted, but a more twisted way in like self-harm. You punish yourself for sin and you, you mortification. Uh, you, you think you're punishing the flesh, you might define flesh as your body, not your sinful tendencies. Well, here's the approach to holiness that we should take. It's not eradication. It's not mortification. It's habitation. It's the idea that I want to live a life that Jesus can habit, inhabit. I want to live a life. I'm only going to do the things and participate in these things and maintain the relationships that Jesus can inhabit. If Jesus cannot inhabit it, then I want nothing to do with it. This may drive your decisions on entertainment. It may drive your decisions on relationships. It may help you determine where you can and cannot work. Can Jesus inhabit me? Can Jesus inhabit this relationship? Can Jesus inhabit this way of living? That's, to me, that's the New Testament way of thinking about holiness is I am hosting Jesus. Will he stay present in this way of living, this way of thinking, this way of operating? So habitation, that, this is the view of sanctification that is actually not obsessed with sin, it's obsessed with Jesus. If you're obsessed with Jesus, sin will have no appeal. It won't even be attractive to you. You, know, you won't have to chart it on a graph to see if you're doing better over the course of six months. Sin will just kind of be like a food that you don't like or a music that you're not, uh, it doesn't appeal to you. You just won't even have an interest. I don't have, there's music I don't like. I don't have to make sure I don't listen to it. <laughs> I listen to what I do enjoy and I don't, I, everything else kind of loses its appeal. So holiness unto the Lord. Uh, holiness means having an influence and not being influenced. Having a positive influence without being negatively influenced. Holiness means not comprising with sin, not mixing with other forms of spirituality. Christianity only works when it's pure. Mingling 
of following Jesus with other ways, uh, mixing Jesus with horoscopes, mixing Jesus with other religions, mixing Jesus with burning sage and smudging, mix, mixing Jesus with these uh, you know, other magic, and it doesn't work. It's like taking a AA battery and a D battery and putting them together and wondering why there's no power. It only works when it's pure. It only works when it's, when it's Jesus is the only way. Once we, that's called syncretism when you start mixing them and, and you actually have created your own religion. This is the third takeaway. Value for young people. I already shared this with you, but they, they, this whole thing was centered on young people. Basically the ages of 25 to 16. And while I was there, my attitude toward young people changed dramatically. Uh, it totally changed as a result of this experience. I am filled with hope about people under 40 now. And I say that as a 41-year-old man, I am not young, I am not old. I am an overweight, middle-aged white guy. So I'm gonna run, I'm gonna run for president. That's the only job left for us. So, um, <laughs> my attitude toward young people changed dramatically. Uh, and I'm just going to, for simplicity's sake, I'm going to say under 40 and over 40. I realize there's more grades to that, but I'm just going to say under 40 and over 40. I'm filled with hope because <clears throat> these young people, I had to go learn from them. They have experienced something that I've been wanting my entire adult life. Um, and I think actually that there, there's something about being in that season of life that might even more easily facilitate these types of experiences that, that we can learn from. There, is there anyone here that is in the room right now that is in their mid-20s? Anyone in there? Okay, uh, Thomas and Holly, how old are you? Okay, so Holly, you're close, 25. Would you mind standing up just so, this is Holly Dressler, she's 25. Okay, listen, King Josiah was 26 when he led Israel in revival. That age, that's it. Okay, you can have a seat if you want, thank you. King Josiah was her age. He was not a gray-haired, wise old man. It was, in, in some ways, it was the zeal of his youth that caused him to turn back to God so drastically. Is there anyone here that is in their early 30s? Kelly, how old are you? Oh, perfect. Man, you'd almost think we rehearsed this, but we didn't. Kelly, would you mind standing up real quick? Jesus was her age. When he died for us. Okay, you can have a seat if you want. I remember when I turned 33 and I was like, I haven't done anything yet. <laughs> Jesus saved the whole world by the time he was 33. I haven't even like, can hardly run a car. I, I actually, this week, started thinking about this. His disciples were even younger. It's easier to find stories of revi revival in the Bible led by young people than old people. You can find a few on either side, but 
you start looking at the disciples and the apostles and some of the Old Testament people, like they're kind of younger. Not, not always, but it's, I think it's probably easier to find people on the younger side of the spectrum that are willing to lead these types of responses to God. In Acts chapter 2, verses 17 and 18, this is the story of Pentecost when the Holy Spirit is poured out. This is uh, Peter preached from Joel chapter 2, and he said, It shall be in the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all mankind. Your sons and your daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will have dreams. Even on my male and female servants, I will pour out my spirit in those days, and they will prophesy. Revival is not just for the old and the wise. It is also for the young and the hungry. And then let me also read from 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 12. I used to love this verse because this verse is written by Paul to Timothy. Timothy was a young pastor. And I used to be a young pastor. And I would read this verse and I would love it. It says, Let no one look down on your youthfulness, but rather in speech, conduct, love, faith, and purity, show yourself an example of those who believe. See, I love that because... It was saying that despite being young, you can set an example, but it's going to be through your character, through your integrity, through your conduct, through the way you treat other people, through your faith. Because when I was a young pastor, I didn't know how am I supposed to lead people that are twice my age. I can't say that I know better. I can't say that I have more experience. I have to earn their trust and earn their respect by having Christ-like character. That's what I thought when I was young, but now that I'm older, over 40, the application has, has been different for me. The application now is, do not look down on those that are young. But I sh- even I should be willing to follow the example of people that are younger than me, but have Christ-like character. They may be younger, they may not have as much life experience, but listen, if they set an example in life and love and conduct in speech and in purity, I can still follow them. I can appreciate them. I can learn from them. Does that make sense? So if you're on the younger side of it, under 40, this passage is an invitation for you to have influence through your character. If you're on the older side, over 40, this passage is an invitation for you to learn from those that are younger provided that they have Christ-like character. Um, This uh, revival in Asbury was focused on millennials and Gen Z, and as I said, my attitude toward young people just changed dramatically. I I have so much hope now. I started thinking about how my attitude has changed, and a lot of the things that I thought were annoying and I say this as like from an older brother perspective. A lot of the things that I thought were annoying, I actually see as assets, not liabilities now. I think we should celebrate the fact that there is a generation that embraces simplicity, that, that has seen the American dream for the nightmare that it really is, and that is willing to live in simplicity that is not chasing prestige through materialism, we should celebrate that, that, they're, that people think tiny homes are cool. What about medium homes? I live in a medium home. Not a tiny home, not a large home, just medium. 
We should celebrate a generation that embraces simplicity. We should celebrate a generation that values experiences over possessions. That's one of the characteristics of millennials and Gen Z is they would rather have an experience than have stuff. They're not as materialistic as previous generations. They would rather spend their money on an experience than possessions and stockpiling things to give them value and worth. And I could see how the Lord could easily use that. I mean, we should celebrate a generation of people that are not afraid to travel and want to make a difference in their life. What a recipe for a missionary movement. The simplicity, the lack of materialism, the willingness to travel, the desire to make a difference in your life. I mean, check all those boxes off when you're filling out potential missionaries and people to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. I mean, that, we, should, we should be celebrating that, that it's, that is woven in to their, to their thinking and their culture. We should celebrate a generation that actually wants to see the kingdom of God impact society, not just individuals. That, that's a good thing. We shouldn't be shutting that down. We should be pouring fuel on that fire. We should celebrate a generation that values diversity and actually wants to see people of different ethnicities living and, and mingling and sharing life together. Like we, we should love that. And we should look at those things and not complain, but actually say, these give us so much hope because this is what the world is going to need moving forward. I also uh, was just impressed while I was driving home that we will need to find ways to explain biblical truth in terminology that is understandable to people that are under 40. So for me, I grew up hearing that sin is defined as missing the mark, and it was always illustrated with a bow and arrow. You know, like, and I don't know how many millennials and Gen Zs have bows and arrows. Probably not many. It was always de described as missing the mark, and that made sense to me, and that is an accurate biblical definition, but an equally accurate biblical definition that might make sense to young people more is referring to sin as brokenness and referring to holiness as wholeness. Because I think people under 40 understand brokenness. They know what a broken relationship looks like. They know what a broken system looks like. They know, what, they know what a broken soul feels like. And so if, if, we were, if we start using imagery like brokenness to describe the impact of sin, and then we start talking about holiness as wholeness, like be, being integrated then and, and healed and restored by Jesus, I think that that will click for them in a way that maybe missing the mark with an arrow maybe wouldn't click. And they're both equally valid, by the way. We just want to, you know, I, I don't, when I speak to my kids, I don't use highfalutin theological language. I want to make sure they understand. Highfalutin is a Greek word. We should have hope, not disdain for young people. We should have hope, not disdain for young people. So I want to, before I, we wrap up, I would like to pray for people that are under 40. If you're under 40 and you're willing would you mind standing up? And then we'll all be surprised at who some of you are. But if you're under 40, would you mind standing up? Okay. 
So I want to pray for people that are under 40. We had a good number at 9 o'clock. We have a good number here now. Okay, so listen. I know that it, you know, we could say, These, this is our future, guys. This is the next generation. No, this is our present. Not our future, our present. Now, today, not tomorrow, not in a couple years, immediately. This is, this is, this is uh, full of hope. So Jesus, I bless those that are under 40, even the 39 and three-quarter-year-olds, all the way down to the kids. Um, Lord, I repent for having sometimes a cynical attitude. And I think I speak for some of, many of us that have had cynical attitudes, Lord, but now I have hope. Now I see what you can do and have already done with people that are young who are, they themselves are filled with hope. And now because of them, I am filled with hope. And I pray that you would grow that hope in our midst. And I pray that in Jesus' name, amen. Okay. Here's how I would like to conclude and wrap up today, and I know that I went a little long, so forgive me. Man, with an emphasis on radical humility, holiness unto the Lord, and value for young people, I just think this is an opportunity for us to adjust some of our thinking, which is a way of saying repent, do, do a 180 on the way we've been thinking, and communion is an incredible opportunity to do that. We have communion elements on my left and my right here. And uh, if you're familiar with communion, you know, you will receive both bread and a cup. Jesus said to his disciples, and Paul recorded this in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, that the bread is his body that was broken for us. You know, Jesus, before he was crucified, he was essentially tortured. His body was broken for us. He consciously suffered. He was not numb. He was not dull. He experienced all of it. And the cup is his blood of the new covenant that was poured out for us. His blood was actually spilled on the ground. He, he literally died. He didn't pass out. He didn't swoon. He died. His blood is poured out for us to establish a new covenant. This new covenant says that God's law is not going to be some external regulation written on a stone tablet, but he's actually going to put the heart behind that law in your heart. It's not an external thing. It's actually now it's an internal thing. He's going to give you a heart of flesh, not a stony heart. So that's the new covenant. That's what the blood points us to. When we take communion, we proclaim Jesus's death until he returns. You know, the two ordinances that we do the most here at True Vine are communion and baptism. Both of those center on the death of Jesus. We don't, we don't really have an ordinance that's not centered on Jesus' death. This is a meal that Jesus shared with his disciples, and so we provide it for his disciples. If you're actively following Jesus, we want to invite you to take communion. Before you do, I want to give you an opportunity for some self-examination. This is how we're going to do this today. A couple ways. You're going to come up. Uh, Rachel, if you want to join me up front, um, our worship team is going to lead us in a closing song. Well, someone is. You can come up front and take your communion elements, and I just want to make the front available. If you would like to kneel here, you don't have to be right on the stage, anywhere in the playing field here, or in the front row of chairs. If you would like to stay up front and kneel, and kneel, stand, lay down, sit, that's all open. You're also welcome, though, to return to your seats if you would like to do that. 
I want you to take communion once you've had time for some self-examination. We're not going to do that all together, just whenever you're prepared to do that. You can do that. And then uh, we're going to have a little bit of a soft dismissal in a, in a few moments. But would you mind standing with me? I'm going to pray and bless these elements. And uh, Amanda's going to lead us. Thank you. Jesus, we bless these elements, both the bread and the cup. The bread reminding us of your body, the cup reminding us of your blood. I ask that you would use these to charge us with grace or divine enablement, divine power. Not not our own power, but divine power. Lord, may we meet with you. May we examine ourselves, confess our sin, repent, and be restored through forgiveness. I pray that in the name of Jesus. Amen. You can come up and take the elements when you'd like, and you're welcome to either stay up front or return to your seat and pray. And we will, uh, I will come back up here in about three minutes. I want to tie these three takeaways together with one word. So radical humility holiness unto the Lord and a value for young people. If we will be, and this is the word, if we will be authentic or genuine or real, we can pursue all of that. Humility demands authenticity. You can't fake who you are. Holiness demands authenticity. You have to be honest and real about areas of brokenness in your life so that Jesus can heal them. And young people have been been fed a steady diet of fake food, fake reality TV, fake filters on their photographs, and they are hungry for anything that is real. Anything that is honest and genuine and authentic will make a difference. And that's what, we wanna pursue that as a church. We do not need to put on a show. We do not need to impress. We do not need to look better than we are. We wanna be real and genuine and authentic. So Jesus, would we put down any pretense? And we, would we resist any aspiration to look better than we are? And Jesus, I pray that we would even be willing to at times be made uncomfortable with other people's authenticity. That we'd be willing to accept that and receive that. We embrace the uncomfortableness that comes with that. We embrace the awkwardness that comes with that. We really want to be transformed, and you're not going to transform our fake selves. You're not going to to transform the masks, the imposters. You're not going to transform that. You want the real us to be brought into your presence to be made whole. So, Lord, I pray for radical humility, holiness, and a value for young people. I pray that 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 would be what we would take from this. I pray that in Jesus' name.